Welcome to the Metaphoricist Magazine podcast, your home for beautifully made speculative fiction. The magazine is edited by B. Morris Allen, and I'm your host, Matt Gomez. This week's story is part one of The Antidote for Longing by Carl Dondonel. The story is narrated by Thomas Baxter. Carl Dondonel is a graduate of Viable Paradise and a full member of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers Association. He and his family, plus their cat overlords, live on an island near San Francisco famous for its Victorian architecture and low speed limits. His preferred drinks are strong Swedish tea and single malt whiskey. This is Carl's third appearance in Metaphoresis. Following comes the Tinker and Papa Pedro's children. Find him online at firewombats.com or on Twitter at kdondanell. That's K-D-A-N-D-E-N-E-L-L. The narrator, Thomas Baxter, lives in Bath, England, and is a student at Bath School of Music and Performing Arts. He has just started his own production company, with his first full show slated for 2024. Let's jump in. The soldiers made no secret of their arrival. Far from it. The lead pair of riders galloped into the outer courtyard below scattering the peacocks. He set up a furious and discordant song of complaint. They redoubled their efforts several minutes later when the carriage and rear guard arrived. I hated the peacocks. Loud, ridiculous creatures. However, they were already established on the grounds when I acquired the house. And my clientele loved them. So, they stayed. It was all part of my facade. Lars Bjornsson, courtier and former advisor to Emperor Gustavus Adolphus. Retired from imperial service and living a quiet life as an importer of fine pistols. My connections at court, real or perceived, set me apart from other merchants. Beneath this facade lay resentment and worry, for an exile from the imperial court is never truly safe. I'd been dreading this moment for three years. But since my dearest friend, Friedrich Magnusson, the Imperial Physic, had hurried me into a carriage in the middle of the night with nothing but a hastily packed bag. Don't blame yourself, he'd said. There's no way you could have known that the Tsar's son was delayed. But I should have known something was wrong. Alexei Mikhailovich is never late for anything. The timing of my plan. Had relied on Alexei's punctuality and secrecy. I knew his servants followed strict orders to prepare the remote cottage with fresh food and bedding, then vacate the area. I also knew I had a brief window, perhaps half an hour, to add a fresh batch of Mad Monk to the brandy before Alexei's current mistress arrived. Mad Monk was favoured by the soldiers of night, the anti-Zarstan sect, Irina always gave him the honour of first toast. Always, I said. The reports were very clear on that. Alas, people are not as predictable as machine mage devices, Friedrich said. What can one do? I'd hunkered beneath a nearby bush, visualising the scenario. When Irina arrived, she would lay out their meal. Alexei would ride in soon after and the couple would dine. The poison would take hold gradually, 
bringing on a gentle melancholy and heaviness of limbs. When I was sure both of them were dead, I was to leave a letter from the soldiers of night claiming responsibility. But Irina apparently grew tired of waiting. I'd watched in frustration and fear as she sat on the cabin step, wrapped in a blanket, drinking a large snifter of brandy. I could have acted, I said. I could have given her the antidote and said I was part of the Tsar's secret guard. Something. Perhaps. We'll never know. No. We won't. By the time I had gathered my wits together, Alexei had arrived. It was all I could do to elude capture and make my way back to Stockholm. Banishments aren't forever. You'll be fine. You're an excellent physic. What a terrible liar, Friedrich. Rather than deny it, he clapped me on the shoulder and ordered the driver to make haste. It's the last time I saw Stockholm. Now, I barred the door to the solarium and unbuttoned the secret pocket of my waistcoat. Hidden within was a tiny silver flask, given to me when I completed my training with the Society of Poisoners. I kept the flask filled with dream caller. One good swallow would painlessly stop my heart. Dreamcaller is one of the first compounds taught to poisonous. It has to be ingested, unlike Angry Falcon, which has to be delivered by knife point, so the compound presents less danger to the student. The last time I'd administered Dreamcaller was four years ago at a midsummer gala, when Duke Emile had drunkenly referred to the Emperor as Gustavus the Last. His bowl of chantrenelle soup was the perfect medium. The white pepper masked the dream caller's slightly astringent aftertaste, and the broth's warmth improved its absorption. Duke Emile's death unfolded so quietly, everyone thought he'd merely fallen asleep between courses. Just another old man who'd had too much wine. I added hot water to my teapot, stirring in a handful of leaves from yesterday's delivery. Smoked black tea with dried orange peels from Iberia. As a Tanzan's perfume permeated the room, I reviewed my desk. Just correspondence with distant cousins and invoices. Nothing incriminating, nor particularly interesting. An accurate measurement of my life in exile. I would leave behind no spouse or children. No lover would mourn my passing. Ironically, I was the perfect target for assassination. I poured myself tea and added half the flask to the cup. Tea was too hot to go. I gave myself a moment. No sense in rushing into the afterlife with a burnt tongue. Besides, the oak door was good and stout. Made as it was from the timbers of a decommissioned imperial warship. It held off French cannons would hold against fists quite easily. However, no such pounding ensued. All I heard was a gentle knock and the faint voice of my old ensual, Pontus. General Bjornsson, he said. What is it? I called out, mindful of his poor hearing. Pontus had served in the artillery squads in Iceland. A messenger wishes to enter. I rubbed the condensation from the nearest window. The carriage lacked horses, or even harness points. Instead, 
It was powered by two large, expensive demon jars connected to the front and rear axles. Few in Yelna could afford such a spellcraft, and they were all gentry. Hardly the sort of people to arrive unannounced. But then I saw the purple vimple hanging from the carriage's front post. Clearly the visitor was not just a messenger, but someone on imperial business. Praise St. Catherine! I made the sign of the cross, a habit from childhood. I dumped the tea into the fire and returned the flask to my waistcoat. Someone wanted me dead. Don't bother with such theatre. Far easier to hire a sniper to put a musket ball through my window, or a knife in my kidney at the marketplace. It appears I'll live another day, I said. What was that, sir? Bring them up. Hope infused my voice. The appearance of an imperial messenger after all this time might, just might, indicate that Emperor Gustavus Adolphus has forgiven my transgression, or at least forgotten it. The passage of years both tempers our bile and dulls our memory. The emperor was nearly seventy. Yes, sir. And Pontus, see that their escort is given some mulled wine. I recalled my own time riding winter escort duty. It was both honour and challenge. You spent hours in the saddle, hunched against the cold, straining your ears for the sudden explosion of hoofbeats behind you. Warm cup at your destination was a gift from heaven. Lieutenant Brigitte Purnell's daughter, my lord said the imperial messenger with a precise court bow. At your service. She was young for such a posting. Perhaps twenty. Her formal uniform consisted of black boots, trousers, blouse, and a tight-fitting coat with cuffs and collar trimmed with white fox fur. Her hat was bare, except for a single ostrich plume. Rather than a court sword, she carried a gold-chased flintlock on one hip, the ceremonial dagger suitable for cutting wax seals on the other. Quarter century ago, I had carried a more functional blade in my boot, its sheath painted with rosebuds, one for every Prussian sentry I'd killed on moonless nights. It is strange, the things we take pride in. Welcome to Yelma, Lieutenant. Be at ease, I said, responding with a salute as smooth and automatic as breathing. It's just General Bjornsson now. Retired. I straightened the lapels of my silk mantue and pointed at a chair. Now what brings you to my home? The imperial physic sends his compliments, she said, handing over a packet of creamy white paper sealed with violet wax, and requests you accompany me. I hesitated over the seal. Am I to understand this wasn't sent by the emperor? No, sir. I would have said so then it isn't a pardon. I accept your message, Lieutenant. I took away my disappointment and opened the packet. My dear friend, Gustavus Adolphus is quite ill, and I need your assistance. Please, come at once. Friedrich Magnusson. P.S. I have shared your situation with Lieutenant Purnell's daughter. She is both clever and discreet. Though I recognised Friedrich's exquisite quill work and his favourite cobalt blue ink, 
the nature of the message struck me as uncharacteristically pithy. Normally, his letters ran on several pages. During our days at the Imperial Academy, he loved to fatten his prose with lines of poetry or quotations from Marcus Aurelius. I admit, I often spurred him on, especially after a glass or three of cheap brandy. His brevity now, both plain message and subtle warning about the messenger. Clever and discreet, was a phrase we used to describe soldiers we suspected of being enemy spies. Alas, I said, I am no longer welcome in the capital. Friedrich of all people knew this. But Gita informed me the imperial family was not in Stockholm. Rather, they were touring the provinces as part of Gustavus Adolphus's extended birthday celebrations. The Emperor and Empress are presently guests at Strongholm Palace, a few hours away. Once the escort's horses are given a brief rest and watered, we can return at a good pace. The carriage's demon jars are fresh, she added. I was relieved. Hiring a mage to change those jars would be ruinously expensive, even if we could find one on such short notice. Yana didn't attract many mages given the nearest demon factory was a full day's ride away. I reread Friedrich's note. Together, we had faced cannon fire and treated our fellow soldiers in bloody field hospitals throughout Europe. In fact, it was Friedrich who'd pleaded with spy master Meyer Wicklund to show mercy, even though my error had almost plunged us into a war with Russia. I sometimes flatter myself. But Maya had spared my life because we had once been lovers, as devoted to each other as we were to our callings. More likely, though, Friedrich's intercession had simply provided her with sufficient political rationale to stay her hand. Having me executed outright might raise the ire of the Society of Poisoners. As far as Friedrich's request was concerned, honour and duty demanded I support the Emperor in any way I could. Beyond that, I wanted to help Friedrich, for he was the closest thing I had to a brother. But seeing him these past few years had been one of the most difficult challenges of my exile. Give me an hour, I told her. The servants will provide a light meal in the sitting room. I exchanged my silk clothes for my old field uniform and great coat. Then I shaved off my oiled and perfumed beard, leaving behind a moustache trimmed in the traditional cavalry style. While Pontus put a final polish to my old boots, I secreted several items about my person, including a poniard, a fresh vial of dream caller. Should this errand go badly, I had no intention of facing the noose. Thus outfitted, I boarded the carriage after Begita, looking every inch the retired officer and not at all a disgraced poisoner. We rolled away from the peacocks and their complaints. I took the thick embroidered wool and silk blanket around my legs and pulled my plain beaver cap around my ears. No residual heat from the demon jars leaked into the carriage. Winter still gripped my bones. The sun might as well have been the moon for all the warmth it produced. Pontus, an Iceland native, would have considered this fine weather. Tell me, Lieutenant, I said. What do you think troubles his imperial majesty? He suffers from gout and dyspepsia, according to Lord Friedrich, 
said Brigitte. Servants have strict orders not to agitate the emperor. Even the musicians are silent, lest they interrupt his rest. You don't sound very convinced. Stablemaster's an old friend. He found it odd that the emperor was riding every day without complaint, then suddenly required bed rest as if he were a woman swollen with child. Without casting aspersion on the imperial physic, I'll acknowledge that he can be quite cautious when it comes to his patient's health, I said. I'm sure he has matters well in hand. And yet here you are, summoned back to court on short notice, said the messenger. Lord Friedrich is an old friend, I said somewhat testily. And as such, he asked me to visit and offer what small wisdom I may have regarding his Imperial Majesty's illness. She inclined her head. My apologies, General. I mean no offence. None taken. However, given your former role at court, one can only speculate that matters are more... serious. And they appear. Oh. She was a sly one, this messenger. She demonstrated all the hallmarks of one schooled in the Imperial Court's intrigue. Faint here, a retreat there. Nothing too direct. I leaned forward and lowered my voice. Lord Friedrich said you were discreet. Discretion is a necessary quality in a messenger, even more so when one serves the Imperial family. Then I encourage you to exercise that discretion. Am I understood, Lieutenant? Perfectly so. I nodded and sat back against the leather bench. As the miles passed, we settled into silent contemplation of the scenery. At this time of year, the road was nothing but grey stones bordered by grey trees, their branches bare. Even the occasional bird was a welcome respite from the monotonous landscape. As we bumped along, I reviewed Begitta's story in the context of the larger picture. If I was still at court, come thee, and Friedrich had told me the Emperor was quite ill, I would be closeted away with the advisers preparing for the worst, especially given that the Imperial family was currently far from the relative safety of Stockholm. Two years before, the Emperor's only child and heir, Gustavus Adolphus II, drowned while crossing Lake Vettern in April. The winter had been unusually warm, leaving behind thinner ice than normal. That summer, when Typhus took the Empress to her own heavenly reward, there wasn't a church or town square that lacked for mourners. The country was devastated. Ambassadors from across the Empire appeared, laden with letters proclaiming their condolences while offering prayers, and, according to gossip, Offers of marriage. Once the formal grieving period had passed, the emperor moved quickly to arrange his betrothal to Anna Schlusen of Prussia, a young widowed noblewoman known for her archery and fierce chess game. She had also previously birthed two healthy boys, a testament to her fecundity. Unfortunately, the new empress had failed to produce an heir with Gustavus Adolphus. If he died now, there was no clear succession. The emperor had, wisely or not, chose to appease the royals by blocking his stepsons from the throne. 
that left eight cousins with questionable claims, most of whom had been quietly raising mercenary levies since the old empress's funeral. If it came to civil war, the empire would surely shatter like a rotten log struck by a cannonball. Our enemies would invade. Stockholm would burn. I shuddered to think of it. One of the lead riders shouted a warning, pushed open the window to get a better look, just as his horse stumbled and pitched forward. Above us, the driver yelled, On the left! Black ice! He engaged the brake. Not too hard, as the wheels lock and we slide off the road completely. The heavy carriage crunched the thin layer of nearly invisible ice, coming to a stop a hundred paces later. Begita opened the door and freed her pistol. Stay here, she said, stepping down lightly, testing the ground. Her head swayed back and forth as she scanned the forest. The other lead rider, a woman with a long braid tucked in her coat, circled back to take up position close to the carriage. She readied a musket. I leaned out the open door. The fallen horse lay on the ground, its rear legs kicking weakly. Megita was helping the escort to his feet. The remaining riders made slow circles. Weapons held ready. Their horses breathing steamed. Damn shame, said the driver. Helvig's only had them out for a fortnight. He seems all right, I said, watching Helvig crane his neck and slap his chest holster and sword belt. I felt that instinct in my gut. After you were thrown from your mount, the first thing was to check yourself and your weapons. Were you wounded? Would you fight? Aye, he's a tough lad. Eat a bowl of surstroning for breakfast and cut down trees until sunset, said the driver. Just stay upwind of him, added the rider. Begita offered Helvig her pistol. He shook his head and readied his own weapon. Very slowly he knelt and put his hand over the horse's eyes. Couldn't hear him. I suspect he was whispering to it. Then he pulled the trigger. The report echoed loudly in the relative silence. He and the messenger then holstered their weapons and began unstrapping his saddlebags. In a few minutes, they had stowed everything inside the carriage's lockbox. Elvig took his musket and climbed up next to the driver. Begita returned to her spot on the bench inside and thumped the ceiling. Make for Hraining Deport. Aye, ma'am. He unlocked the wheels and we slowly picked up speed. She said to me, We'll pick up a fresh man for Helvig and get you to Stromsong without further delay. How is Helvig? I asked. His backside will be black and blue tomorrow, but nothing a bowl of ale won't fix. Soon we spied the deport. It was a small place, mostly ancient low stone walls with a newer wooden outer wall. Its vimple barely stirred in the light breeze. Brigitte stepped out as soon as we came to stop and strode up to a soldier stacking firewood. What's your name? Private Ludson, ma'am. He dropped the firewood and gave a sloppy salute. I'm Lieutenant Purnell's daughter. Tell your commander we need your freshest horse saddled on the double. We lost one about half an hour down the road to black ice. Ma'am? Yes, ma'am, he said, jogging off. I exited the carriage and casually stretched my legs, trying to work some stiffness out. I observed a pair of sentries at the gate and another walking along the outer wall. 
Between them, they had clear firing lines covering the road in both directions. Though they didn't seem particularly alert. Private Lutzen returned in the company of another man. A young captain with dueling scars on one cheek. His flat cap sported a white feather and a jaunty red ribbon. Gift from an admirer, perhaps? Hello, said the officer. Sorry to hear about the loss of your animal, but I just can't give you a horse and tack without the proper requestion. There has to be an account of everything that leaves the outpost. Vegeta smiled. Captain Nyberg. Captain Nyberg. Let me remind you that everything in this deport, down to your woolen socks, belongs to the Emperor. It would be a shame if I had to report that I was delayed because some prissy officer wouldn't give us a fresh mount. Nyberg put a hand on his sword. Are you threatening a superior officer? No one is threatening anyone, I said, stepping forward. However, as much as I admire your dedication to procedure, Captain, we have important business that cannot be delayed. I checked my pocket watch. We're leaving in five minutes. Nyberg narrowed his eyes. I could see he was considering and discarding his options. As much as he thought he could push around a junior officer, he had no such leverage with me. You have to make this a challenge of honour and settle it with steel. After taking my measure, he snapped an order at Lutzen, who took off running even faster than before. Anything else, sir? He asked. No, Captain. You have the Emperor's gratitude. He saluted. Vegeta said, You might want to send a squad down the road to collect the corpses before it draws wolves. At the very least, collect the saddle. Nyberg nodded and trotted away with quick, heavy steps. Five minutes later, Lutzen reappeared with a great beast of a black horse, saddled and ready. This is Baldur, Captain Nyberg's horse. He was getting ready to ride patrol when you showed up. He handed the reins to Begita, who passed them to Helvig. My compliments to the captain, said Helvig, offering up his hand for the horse to sniff. I'll take good care of him. Anything else, ma'am? Begita shook her head. Dismissed. We resumed our journey. Once we'd made up some time, Begita seemed to relax. She drank from a leather water skin and passed it to me. Permission to speak frankly, sir? Of course. I gulped water as we bounced over a rough patch. Would you mind telling me why you intervened back there? I don't like bullies, I said. And Nyberg is a bully, which is why he's commanding a supply depot in the middle of nowhere rather than Stockholm or Jotobor. I see, she nodded. So that wasn't some misplaced display of chivalry. She wasn't completely wrong. When I was in the field, few women served in her capacity. If it was, if it was unintentional, Lieutenant, I returned the water skin. I'd wager a gold crown you could soundly thrash the captain. If it came to that. If it came to that, you'd win, she said with a wicked grin. The ride became markedly smoother once we attended the main supply route between Malamo and Stockholm. It had originally been laid out by Romans and improved upon and extended by Swedish engineers ever since. It was common in summertime to 
to encounter gangs of political prisoners doing road repairs in exchange for reduced sentences. In another hour, we saw signs of Vastaros which put us close to Stromson Palace. The driver rang a warning bell and eased off the brakes, increasing our speed. The outriders spurred their mounts to keep up. Fortunately for the horses, we reached the castle soon enough. Stromson was a cold, dismal place in winter. Its gardens nothing but ice-frosted bare bushes, its lake empty of boats. Even the swans had the good sense to be elsewhere. The driver delivered us through a small gate far from the main entrance while our escorts peeled off towards the stables. The gate closed behind us. I kept an eye on the messenger's hand, resting near her pistol. I didn't believe she would arrest me now, but there might be others outside, soldiers with different orders. With careful movements, I loosened my blanket. Should events go amiss, I should be able to fling it over her and wrestle the pistol away. A lifetime of wariness breeds such thoughts. We rolled to a stop and the door was opened from without. No jailers waited with irons. Pagita saluted and leaned back so that I might exit first as senior officer. With great relief, I returned her salute, grateful for this small courtesy. As my first commander liked to say, anyone can purchase court privileges, but military quizzits are earned. I winced as I stepped onto the flagstones. Even the well-maintained carriage was a challenge for my knees. All that time in the saddle and too many winter campaigns had taken their toll. Out of habit, I glanced up at the main tower's flagpole. The rectangular sun and ocean banner snapped in the cold breeze, indicating the presence of the Imperial family and their attendants, including the Imperial physic and spymaster, neither of whom I'd seen since Stockholm. A wave of nostalgia and pride washed over me, quickly followed by a deep sorrow. It was one thing to don the uniform and transform myself into a soldier, but the Imperial Court was an entirely different, more dangerous battlefield. My heart ached to be part of it once again. Despite my banishment, I'd arrived safely. Perhaps my luck was improving. That was part one of The Antidote for Longing by Carl Dondonell. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in the final Fridays of August and September for parts two and three. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you'd leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to us on. Or better yet, share the magazine and podcast with a friend. If you'd like to listen to more speculative fiction, visit us online at magazine.metaphoricist.com or on Twitter at Metaphoricist Mag.